отношения, Hello and welcome to the International Affairs Books podcast. I'm Ben Horton. In this episode, Champa Patel, head of the Asia programme at Chatham House, speaks to Francis Wade, a journalist and author, about the Rohingya crisis. Francis's latest book on the crisis was reviewed in the January issue of International Affairs by Champa. We hope you enjoy the programme. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Champa Patel and I'm the head of the Asia programme at Chatham House. Today we are joined by Francis Wade, a journalist who has lived and worked within Southeast Asia for many years. He's here with us today to talk about his recent book, Myanmar's Enemy Within, Buddhist Violence and the Making of the Muslim Other, which is reviewed in the latest issue of International Affairs. So thank you for joining us today, Francis. Thank you. Just to kick things off, perhaps you could tell us what your book is about? The book explores the, I suppose, rise and spread of anti-Muslim sentiment in Myanmar, um, particularly since 2012, when a first wave of violence between Buddhists and Muslims struck Western Myanmar. And it explores what the relationship between the violence and the democratic transition is, how it mutated across the transition, how violence that seemed to be more ethnic in nature at the beginning became more, I suppose, religious in its expression um, over the years since the transition began in 2011. And it involves a lot of reporting on the ground that I did uh, between 2012 and 2016. And it looks at, almost unwittingly, the processes that precipitated the violence that began in August 2017. Yeah, I was really struck because the book is really rich in terms of, you know, the access you were able to have with so many different types of communities. So just be interested to hear a little bit more about, you know, what was it about the relationship between Buddhist and Muslim communities that you wanted to better understand? Why did you choose that as a particular entry point? Well, I began reporting on this in earnest in the middle of 2012. And for the three years prior, I'd been working for an exiled Burmese news organisation based in northern Thailand. And I was surrounded by colleagues and um, other Burmese who had been living in Thailand for several years, several decades even before that, and who were part of what we knew to be the pro-democracy movement, um, this movement that agitated against military rule, that sought to bring about democratic governance in the country. And what really struck me when the first wave of violence broke out between Rohingya and Rakhine um, in Western Myanmar in 2012 was that there seemed to be... uh, great deal of antipathy directed at Rohingya from even amongst pro-democracy advocates or so-called pro-democracy advocates. And it didn't seem to matter that the Rohingya had borne the brunt of the violence, um, that they were the ones who had been confined en masse in internment camps in Western Rakhine State. It seemed that there had lay dormant or lay hidden even this very sort of virulent anti-Rohingya um, sentiment even amongst people who espoused otherwise democratic ideals. And that struck me as very interesting and something worth exploring. And so I started to investigate both the violence on the ground, who had attacked who, how it had sort of broken out, I suppose, but also tried to get into the mind of, you know, people who 
seemed to me very progressive in their ideals. Um, but then on this particular issue, there was this what seemed to be like a blind spot um, that meant they couldn't couldn't really sympathise or bring themselves to sympathise with this minority group. I think they were some of the more difficult sections to read in the book because it's it's exactly as you say, these are progressive voices who are so regressive on the issue of the Rohingya. And how were you able to secure the confidence of people so that they spoke freely? Or is it a case that these things are just openly talked about without compunction? There was certainly a lot of hostility towards, I think, Western journalists in particular working on this issue, given that the narrative goes that the Rohingya are, you know, an alien presence in the country. Um, They're part of this broader Islamic conspiracy to dislodge Buddhism from its central position in the country. Um, And because the majority of international, I suppose, sympathy or attention has gone on the Rohingya victims in the conflict, then many Buddhists, particularly Buddhist Rakhine, um, see foreigners, Westerners in particular, as aiding this Rohingya conspiracy. So it's difficult to it's been difficult to build the trust of um, people on the ground, particularly in Rakhine state. But at the same time, if you're talking to or when I've spoken with perpetrators of violence or supporters of violence, there's been this sense that what they're doing is morally right, and because of that, I. Th- they don't, you know, they don't seem to be restrained in sort of airing their views um, and admitting to having taken part in violence because they believe it to be the just thing. Um, they're quite open about talking about it. And so while there were times during interviews when it felt very tense, um, when it was obvious that there was a great deal of hostility, it almost seemed as if they wanted to talk about it. They felt they were justified in doing what they had done. Um, and in that sense, it was, you know, easy. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting dynamics is how, uh, you know, an, an embattled majority sees itself as a minority within the country, that it has to defend itself in this way. But I think what was interesting in the book is then how you married that to uh, analysing the concept of ethnicity itself, particularly in terms of how people will switch identities. So perhaps you could speak more about why ethnicity was just as an important a component as looking at religion. That's right. I think one of the most unyielding beliefs of this strain of exclusionary nationalism that struck Myanmar and that spread in Myanmar is that there are certain ethnic groups that are natural, almost primordial, um, that are consistent across time. They don't change. Um, And in the book, I dedicate the the bulk of two chapters um, to speaking with people who had almost crossed from one ethnicity to another. Um, And I did this to sort of break this idea um, that there is, there are particular groups that are made up of members who don't, who all identify almost primordially with one another, that there are certain traits that don't change over the time, um, that these groups remain intact. I think that's a fallacy. Um, And it's led to this idea that certain groups are bad, certain groups are good, certain groups are indigenous, certain groups are foreign. And in the book I interviewed two people at length, one of whom was um, a girl from an ethnic minority called the Mon, who inhabit um, southeastern Myanmar. They are one of the largest ethnic minority groups in the country. Um, But she, in order to, I suppose, increase her chances of success in life in a country in which the Bama, the majority, were seen as 
almost the sort of superior group, um, or at least that was the narrative peddled by the military. She knew that to increase her chances of success in terms of getting work, in terms of career progression, she would need to present herself as a Bama. And so she adopted the mannerisms of a Yangon living Bama person. And so her mother taught her how to present herself, how to speak, how to sit in class, how to act and so on. And she was able to convince authorities that she wasn't from this ethnic minority group that you know, the military viewed with suspicion in Myanmar. She was, in fact, from the majority group, the Bama. Um, and the same with uh, Rohingya guy who managed to convince authorities that he was not a Rohingya Muslim, but a Rakhine Buddhist, i.e. accepted as part of the um, country to a degree. I included those because there's this very stubborn belief that the Rohingya in particular are a political project that they, in contrast to other groups that are natural, primordial, they came together as one. The Rohingya instead are this, you know, conspiracy. Um, they're formed of Bengalis who crossed over into the country, um, who are trying to weaken Buddhism, weaken Rakhine ethnicity. But he showed that you can cross from one group to another. There's nothing innate within you um, that has a bearing on your behavior. Yeah, I think what it shows is, one, the, the construction of ethnicity. You know, it, I think it's absolutely right that when we talk about these fixed identities, borders have changed. Modern Myanmar exactly. came into being since 1948. So this idea of fixed positions within fixed boundaries just is a historical fallacy. Exactly. But I think it speaks to performing as well, how ethnicity is a performance, that people pass in order to be able to survive and thrive. But that's not a solution for the vast majority of people. You know, so I thought it was interesting to pull out the ethnic dimension of this because a lot of the current commentary does focus more on the religious kind of tensions between the two communities. So I think it was an important aspect of the book. Um, but it's interesting to me because your book actually was written before the August attacks that saw the mass exodus of Rohingya that we've seen into Bangladesh. If you were to write it now from the vantage point of having seen what's happened since then, do you think there's anything that you would have written differently? Would you have framed the argument in a slightly different way? Has it made you rethink some of your conclusions? It's difficult because, and as you said, the book came out just before, um, I think it was 10 days before the military attacks on Rohingya in Western Myanmar in August. And I suppose in the book, I go through some of the processes that have led to the othering of the Rohingya and their ostracization from the sort of national community in Myanmar. Then their isolation, their stigmatization, these campaigns of dehumanization they've experienced. Um, the fact that aid to them has been um, severely limited, they've been isolated inside camps and villages. And these are all recognized precursors to mass killing, mass violence. And if you look at, you know, various sort of scholarly work on genocide or ethnic cleansing, it very much emphasizes that is it's a process, it's not an act, a singular act. It's a process that's often years in the making. It requires particular stages to have been passed before it reaches the point of forced expulsion, as we've seen, or mass killing. So in that sense, I think the book unwittingly, I suppose, because I didn't know for sure that you know, something like this was going to happen. But it, I suppose, documents, you know, the worsening of conditions in Western Myanmar and the 
intensification of this very toxic, bitter animosity towards Rohingya. And in doing so, I think it starts to sort of unpack some of the sort of precursors to the violence. Yeah, it's true. And if you take a longer view, then you'd look at what happened in the 70s, the 90s, the expulsions in 2012, what's happening now. What's different now is the scale of what we're seeing. But there's certainly historical precedents for this in terms of how the Rohingya have been treated within Myanmar. So certainly in terms of building a case for genocide, ethnic cleansing or crimes against humanity, it certainly seems to meet some of the tests that we would, you know, think that these acts do constitute that. But then what do you make of the response of the international community? Because it's been somewhat fragmented, a little bit weak. There's been a lot of denunciation, but little action. Uh, The fund for Myanmar remains, you know, woefully underfunded. So from your perspective, what's your analysis of the international community's response so far? Well, I think many actors in the international community, particularly the US and the UK, have realised too little too late that they missed quite vital warning signs. These were, if not ignored, then I suppose papered over in the hope that the transition that they had so vigorously supported, and in particular Su Chi's position, Aung San Su Chi's position at the helm of the transition, would continue apace and that this situation would, I guess, solve itself. And what we've seen now since August 2017 is a realisation that not only do we have a military that hasn't been touched by reforms, not only do we have an atmosphere in the country that is that lends itself to mass violence, not only do we have a leader of the country or a de facto leader of the country who is unwilling or unable to help the situation, aid the situation, in the way that a lot of Western governments might have hoped. It's that they realised that there was a certain myopia in Western foreign policy to Myanmar. And part of that was the fact that there really was no other leader that could serve as a sort of point person in the country. It's always been Aung San Suu Kyi. She's always stood, well, for a long time, stood in opposition to the military. So it's natural that Western governments would turn to her. But now we see this very sort of sinister, um, worrying symbiosis between Aung San Suu Kyi and the military. And I think it's forced a lot of Western governments to, if not recalibrate their position towards her, towards her government, then at least take a step back and realise that, you know, this romantic story of a country transitioning away from military rule to a successful democracy isn't happening. And part of the problem as well is that Suu Kyi is a very authoritarian figure and she, it appears deliberately, has not cultivated any other alternative leader or allowed space for an alternative leader to develop that could provide another sort of person that Western governments could turn to. And so, you know, it's a very difficult situation. If they were to drop support for Suu Kyi, then who would they turn to? I think the challenge is that, you know, the, the focus on her provides cover for the military. You know, nobody talks about uh, Minong Lai. Everybody's talking about Aung San Suu Kyi. Exactly. So the focus on her is both warranted, but also then draws attention away from other key figures who are actually responsible for some of the worst excesses that we're seeing committed by the military. So it's difficult to know then how, you know, the international community should respond. I think in terms of the humanitarian operations, you know, there are no political considerations there. The fund needs funding. 
people need money in order to be able to provide humanitarian support. They need access to Rakhine in order to be able to help communities that have been displaced. But there's a long-term political project here that nobody is really talking about, right. which is how do you address the issue of statelessness? Because, you know, you can return people, but they are still going to be stateless. So it's interesting to me that we talk about the refugee situation, the refugee crisis, but nobody really talks about this as a crisis of statelessness. So from your perspective, uh, why do you think that's an important angle that people should focus on and look at? Well, I think at the moment, the response seems to be one of let's do what we can bit by bit. And we know that there are issues that are to a degree within our remit, our control. One is providing humanitarian assistance for those who are now in Bangladesh. So let's concentrate on that first and let's alleviate their hardship. When we get on to issues like statelessness, which is a matter of Myanmar law, when we get on to issues of this toxic prejudice, then we're talking about a sort of shift in the cultural mindset of the country. These topics are very difficult to formulate policy for from countries you know that are interested in Myanmar um, interested in pushing it along this sort of path of democratic transition it's difficult to know how given the fact that Myanmar has suddenly refused to sign up to so many international conventions how it would now be convinced to do so given that granting um, citizenship for Rohingya could you know it could potentially provide another spur for violence towards them, communal violence. Um, so we have all these issues that lie beneath the surface and that any sort of push in terms of um, countries trying to cajole the Myanmar government to change their policy towards the Rohingya could you know, activate tensions once again. Yeah, and I think what your book shows is this is as much a cultural problem as it is a political problem. You know, the international community has a role to play to push for long-term political solutions, i.e. recognising that the Rohingya are a part of Myanmar. But cultural discrimination is a long-term endeavour. It's going to be a multi-generational, you know, exercise. So to begin to even address that requires the sort of forward thinking that we're just not seeing at the moment. Um, so I think the book is really important in illustrating how religion and ethnicity can create these you know polarities that then are very difficult to undo and unpack but looking forward you know into the future are you optimistic or do you think that you know with this kind of return of people to a situation where nothing really has changed means that we will just see the same kind of forced expulsions in the future or do you think there are some seeds of optimism that things could work out differently i think at present it would be lethal to return these people to the areas that they fled from. The communal dynamic inside the country is toxic at the moment. It sounds like the government, if it does accept a certain number of Rohingya back into Rakhine State, will place them inside, you know, what would amount to uh, replicas of the internment camps that exist elsewhere in the state. That can't happen. They should only go back if they can be returned to um, a situation where their security is guaranteed. In terms of glimmers of hope, I mean, it's very difficult. Once you segregate communities in the way that the government has since 2012, then it really breeds this sense of distrust that can turn to violence very quickly. 
it struck me when I spoke to Rakhine politicians and Rakhine activists in particular that there was a real sort of desire to have separate enclaves for Muslims and Buddhists, perhaps because they truly feared that Rohingya were a threat to them, or perhaps because they knew that to segregate the two communities, to drive communal tensions, would push Rakhine to identify more closely with their own sort of kin, their own ethnic group. And if there's a political party that represents that ethnic group, then they would identify more closely with the political party and that would sort of equal support for the political party. And so I think when we talk about, um, you know, it being a religious conflict or we talk about it being an ethnic conflict, we have to remember that it's neither one nor the other. There are multiple cleavages at play here, ethnicity, religion, but also political um, incentives to keep these communities apart, um, to keep the tensions, you know, festering and to keep the prospect of violence only one step away. Because I think fear is a very powerful unifier and I don't see any sign at the moment that that's changing. Um, and so when we look to the future, I think we have to remember that this isn't just a kind of isolated incident, something that's just broken out either in August 2017 or in 2012, you know, as a product of the transition. It's been in motion for a long time. Um, the transition has provided fuel for it to worsen. So I think we have to look at, in terms of, you know, if we're thinking about an international response, what's going to, what a robust international response is going to look like. We have to remember that A, we have these multiple cleavages, B, there are people in the country, powerful people, who aren't going to want to see the two communities brought back together. And so no one wants to leave it on a pessimistic note, but I think we have to be realistic about the gravity of the situation and the complexity of it. I think that's true. This is a fast-changing situation, an ongoing situation, but as your book identifies, also one that's historical and a culmination of something that's been going on for decades. Well, thank you for joining us today and sharing your thoughts and your analysis with us. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned at the outset of the podcast, the book has been reviewed in the latest issue of International Affairs, and you can read the review online for free. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to the International Affairs Books podcast. For more from Champa Patel, visit the Chatham House website at chathamhouse.org. To keep up with the latest news and events from International Affairs, Follow us on Twitter at IAJournal underscore CH. Thanks for listening.